Look for chapter 3 from about verse 26 for now. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Lord, our God and Father, we just pray that you would open up your word to us in such a way as that we would have spiritual eyes to see, Lord God. Not these mere natural eyes, Lord God, that look on the external things, but that we would see truth and justice, Lord God, that we would see the revelation of Jesus Christ in our words and our works, that you would change us, Lord God, in such a way as that we would be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ in this life and perfectly in the next. We thank you for all of these blessings in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I've talked with you, a lot of you, about the coming of this sermon. It's going to be a terrible, terrible sermon. One of my worst ever. Just in terms of the blatant inadequacy of a person to get up here and talk about this stuff. And yet we really have no choice whatsoever. One of the promises you make upon your ordination is you're going to preach to those people the full counsel of God. And the full counsel of God means stuff they're going to like and stuff they won't like so much. Entire ministries are kind of determined by what they're going to do with this preach the whole counsel of God thing. Now today we are talking about issues having to do with race. It's all over our culture and here's the thing. We live in a place in which I've, I've read the statistic, I don't know how they analyzed it, but apparently close to 80% of the people in this area are Southern Baptists. Now that's massive. I don't know of any other place in the United States that has such a concentration of one specific denominational background except for possibly Holland, Michigan. Chad? Where they're all Dutch Reformed, Right? But for the most part, it's all very spread out, and it's mixed in, and if you drive around this block, there are at least 15 churches on this block, all kinds of different backgrounds. Most of them, no matter what they're called, no matter what their, their external name is, they're actually affiliated with the Southern Baptist Conference, right? And we've talked about the changes that have happened. Southern Baptists in the United States are not old European Anabaptists. They're not related to that lineage at all. Southern Baptists in the United States come from about the 1840s to 1850s, and they tend to have broken off from this other group that we like to call the Presbyterians. Interesting, right? That's why when we get down to this place in history and we look at the doctrinal statements of the Baptists and the Presbyterians, they match like 90% of the time. We're actually the closest two theological cousins probably in the United States. That's why you often saw R.C. Sproul on the same stage as you know, people like Albert Moeller the uh, president of uh, Southern Baptist Seminary, because they recognized we overlap a lot more than we have distinctions, right? Now, a lot of you aren't really interested in all the currents and the things that are going on in the big show of American evangelicalism, but frankly, for a church to ignore such things is not completely healthy because you have to have an idea of what's going on around you. You do. And these are huge national conflicts not just in our little area. You have to remember, 
It's still the biggest Protestant denomination in the United States with more than 10 million members, which is a little bit more than the ARP. <laughs> and these things are affecting everything. Along with this last year, there was the election, which kind of divides us all. And then came the virus and all the opinions on it, and that divides us all. And then there's these other issues that we really don't want to talk about. And then we have to ask ourselves, does the Bible ever talk about it? Just a little? Possibly even a lot, right? So there are the basic things about race that we kind of all agree on. And then there are the places where there's disagreement, but it's within orthodoxy. And then there are the places that are an outright heresy, right? And they've all existed during the history of the church. This current convulsion going on within the Southern Baptist Conference is affecting every other denomination and every other group in American Protestantism. We're going to read what's going on in their conflict so that we can understand a little of our own, but it is excruciatingly a theological conflict about the nature of the gospel and the nature of the law. A lot of us have had conversations about the fact that really all you do from a pulpit is law and gospel. If you're doing anything else, you're inventing something new. It's all law and gospel. Whose laws? God's laws. Whose gospel? God's gospel, right? Most of what we're saved from in the gospel is our breaking of the laws. Jesus perfectly kept the laws for us so that we would not die but have everlasting life in him. And yet, a lot of the things that we do administratively and the ways we vote and the decisions that we make in our lives are actually upon a basis of God's moral law. We're trying to do what's right, and not what's wrong, right? So, as far as like primary presumptions of Christianity and theism in general, we go all the way back to Adam, and what race was Adam? It's almost a weird question, right? A few of you are like, yeah, well, which one? Well, yeah, the scriptures say he was God's son. He was God's first son in a human and created way. Jesus is the eternal son of God, but he was his son. But notably, I want you to catch this because of some of the things that we're going to get into. He wasn't Jewish. Didn't wear a yarmulke, right? Did he eat pork? I don't know, but probably vegetarian from the warm-up we get in early Genesis, right? But he was the father of which ones of us? Yeah, the Bible says that God made all people from one blood, right? And then we get to Noah, and how many of us are descendants of Noah as far as the way the Bible teaches it? Every one of us. And some people do some tricky things with those wives, right? Like he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they were married, and eight of them were on the ark, and they came out and they made the nations, a lot of people say, well, you know, a lot of the nations had to come from those wives. Presumptively, they were all the same race. We get this same thing all the way down when we get into Abraham, right? Abraham, the father of all who have faith in Christ. That's what it says. But Abraham was born in where? Ur of the Chaldeans, and we have his genealogies, and so he was a Chaldean. You have to remember, at that time in the Bible, no such thing as a Jew. And it's interesting what God does. He calls Abraham out of his father's house in Ur of the Chaldeans, and he says, you come out in the wilderness with me, and I'll teach you to worship me, and I will bless you, and I will make you a great nation. And your descendants will be as numerous from the, as the stars of the heavens, and I will bless upon blessing you, and the entire world will be blessed through you. 
And Abraham's like, right on. <laughs> and then, you know, time drags on, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. He gets a little tired of waiting. He has another kid with this other chick. It's a bad, it's a bad thing. But God says, but that's not the son I promised. That's the son you made from your own flesh. The one I promised isn't here yet. And so God waits until his wife is 90 and he's 100 because God wants to show that it's by God's power and his miraculous will and not by the mere flesh of man. And so he brings forth a son Isaac and Isaac brings forth a son Jacob and Jacob and Esau have all these shenanigans. And then at the end, he blesses Jacob and he says, the promise I gave to your father, now I'm going to make you a great nation and I take away your name Jacob, which means to wrestle with God or to clutch at the heel, and I make your name Israel, from which we get the 12 or the 13 tribes of Israel because Joseph's sons were two half tribes. So how did he get to be a nation? the arbitrary assignment of God that he was now a nation. Now, believe it or not, this happens all through Scripture. God makes a law, hey, if you're going to be Jewish, I don't want you to marry anybody that's not Jewish. Is God being a racist in there? God's not actually Jewish. He's not descended from them. They're descended from him. We all are, right? But for the preservation of true theology and the lineage of the Messiah, he incorporated them as a people. And not only as a people or a theological people, but also as an ethnic people with a specific ancestry. But here's one of the things that we've often talked about later as people are grappling with these issues and reading the articles and watching the videos that are out on this. It was an ancestry and a people and a nation and even an ethnicity which was stratified. It had borders but it was permeable. People came in from out of it and became a part of the nation. They were not physically descended from Abraham. And people came out of it and were cast out of it completely, never to return to the nation. The nation is kind of an arbitrary construct, not completely because it was descendants of a person, but we have several people that come into the nation and they're circumcised and they become a part of the people of God and they stay there Forever, We have people coming in and people going out. And that shows that it's not a purely ethnic distinction. And this presages what happens in Christ when the gospel and the people of God are opened up to the entire world through those who have faith in Jesus Christ. But one of the things that was a strict law of scripture is your daughters couldn't marry the other nations. Right? Now there's an interesting story here. How many of you have read the book of Ruth? Because a lot of you have read it. I'm not going to read a lot of it, but I'm going to tell the story. Ruth's mother, Naomi, and her two sons, because there's a famine in the land, they leave the land and go into the land of the pagans. This is something God specifically told them, don't do, right? I'll take care of it. Don't run away. Don't go and live among them. But they went and they lived among them. And while they were there, they took wives from the other nations, right? And then... The famine's over and the famine comes there and the famine's not in Israel anymore, but the two sons die. And so Naomi says, I don't have anything for you. I can't feed you. Now I'm in poverty. My sons are dead. I'm going to go back to Israel. I have some relatives there. You women should probably go back to your mothers and fathers. And one of them says, your people are my people and your God is my God. And where you go, I will go. And that's Ruth. But not Jewish. And she comes back to the land with Naomi. 
and they make a claim, a bridal claim, upon the family, upon the basis of her being an aggrieved Jewish widow, to marry back into the family so that she can be provided for financially by the family wealth. Why? She married a Jewish boy. So she was Jewish. That's how folks came in and out. Now, I know this seems a little strained, but I want you to grasp the way the Bible works with race. When you read the Song of Solomon, which I'm sure you all have read, woo! It's a little racy, right? It's an ancient Middle Eastern love poem in the middle of the Bible. God did not want to leave any stone unturned in that book. So he talks about all kinds of stuff that would make us uncomfortable on Sunday morning. We'll be going over the Song of Solomon for the next three... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) And I know some people come into that and they're like, well, you know, it's really about the spirituality of Christ and everything, and that may very well be true, but it's an interesting way to do it. (laughs) And what does he say? What does he keep saying about the skin and the color of the woman that he's in love with and that he's trying to get to marry him. This phrase keeps coming up, dark and lovely, right? You guys remember this story of Moses. Moses had this great wife that he met in Midian, and her father was the priest of Midian, and he spent 40 years serving his father out in the wilderness, and then God calls him through a burning bush. But he had to spend 40 years guarding sheep and goats before he was ready to go back. And his wife is the one that at first was kind of the stronger spiritual influence and intercedes between him and the angel of God to keep God from killing Moses because he had not circumcised his children. But later on at the end of the story, she passes away, and he was long lived by a gift of God, and so he remarries, and his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam come, and they start to chastise him because he married a black girl. And God curses her with leprosy all over her body so that she's scorched completely white by the disease. And Moses intercedes for her, and she repents, and she's healed and restored. But one of the things that we find out through that in other stories is, as far as being Jewish, there was not a specific color to that. They weren't all white. They weren't all black. They weren't all brown. There were millions of them. They had interacted with the Egyptians for 430 years. They ran the spectrum. Faith in God was the primary determining factor of who was one of the people of God in the Old Testament and in the New. How many of you want to argue that Ahab was just a great Jew? At the same time, we get to that story of Uriah the Hittite which is a powerful story where David himself commits a sin against Uriah, who is such a Hittite, they even name him Uriah the Hittite. Now, the Hittites were one of the pagan nations that were not supposed to interact with the people of God. They weren't allowed to live in the nation. They were driven out when the people came into the promised land. But the Uriah the Hittite was a convert. It doesn't talk about his conversion, but he could not have been a captain and a general for David's army unless he was a circumcised believer in Jehovah. And so they bring him in, and he is a more noble and faithful man at that time of life than David himself. But David takes his wife as his own. Now, the strong presumption of Scripture is she was not a Jewish girl. She was a Hittite because she was married to Uriah the Hittite, right? She also becomes the mother of a very interesting boy named Solomon. Now, Solomon has a problem with the ladies, 
It's a serious one. At first, you know, it's like we've got to make some uh, agreements with these other nations around here. So I'm going to go to uh, the kings of all these other nations, and I'm going to marry one of their daughters just for politics. Just for politics, right? So he had 300 wives, but he had 700 concubines. The Lord told him very specifically three things to not do. One of them was to multiply wives, because that's what the pagan nations do, right? And it says that because some of those wives came from those other religions, other regions, other ethnicities, and other cultures, when he was older, they turned his heart away from the Lord. We're talking about Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. In the New Testament, we also get an expression of this that says you should not be unequally yoked. In other words, you can't marry outside the faith. And yet at the same time, the Bible also says you may not divorce your spouse because of their lack of faith. So it gives us both of those things. These are just things to build up of interest because they start to help us to understand something that we've never been taught in our culture, which is that the traditional interpretation from about the 1890s that started in about the 1830s of Negroid, Mongoloid, Caucasoid, and Asiatic is a complete fiction of evolution and Western scientism that doesn't exist in the Bible at all. You were raised to think it. We all thought it was science, right? Now nobody believes that. Nobody believes that. Do you really think that you understand who and what you are because your ancestors came from the Caucasus mountain regions outside of Albania? That was science maybe in the late 1800s, but nobody believes that now, right? Also, there's this thing that you've been seeing around called whiteness. White people, whiteness, white privilege, all of this. Well, the basic intimation of that you're reading is a little bit of racism in there, right? Because I remember when I was a kid, nobody who was Irish thought they were of the same race as Germans. And Italians didn't think they were the same race as English people. We were all stuck here in America. But the older idea is your ancestry, your nation, your language, your religion kind of determined who you were. The people that came before you had an influence on who you are now, and that was to be remembered and respected. And I'll tell you something, that's a lot closer to the biblical ideal than what we're dealing with now. The attacks upon whiteness, when you read about that and you start to see that defined in, in, in the articles and in the scholarly documents, what it tends to be implying is this. People that live the way that the Bible has taught people to live and the society that it's influenced and created have some kind of a problem. When they talk about whiteness and white people, they're not really talking about your skin. They're talking about your heart. Now, this kind of prejudice is kind of definitive of racism. Racism has changed. Remember when people just hated people because they were different? Man, what if we could get back to the good old days? Now, they're just dividing and dividing and dividing, and it's flooded into the church, and that's why we're talking about this today. It's flooded into the church. If there was one place in history, as you go back through the 2,000 years, that people could come together and be one people, even if they were from different languages or different backgrounds or different ethnicities, it was always the church because Christ and him crucified is bigger than all this. 
And I'm telling you, these days it's not. These days the society is turning to a place where it is hating people completely because of this complexion called whiteness that's largely a mythology. I'm telling you, when you read the documents, there is no such thing as what they're talking about. Do you really mean that everybody all the way from Sweden, all the way to Turkey, that those people are the ones that have this problem called whiteness? And other people don't. What, what do we think of when we think of prejudice? Prejudice is kind of to prejudge somebody or their character or their abilities or their intelligence on the basis of external, externalities, right? Well, let me tell you, in this current interpretation that is flooding into the churches, that's preferred, not rejected. So you have to understand what's going on, okay? It's preferred, it's commanded, it's a mandate that we judge people and do things in relation to merely their race. It's different, right? When we studied the Bible, we came up with this idea of a basic colorblindness in which we treated all people the same and we had equal laws, and everybody had the same laws, and everybody had the same rights, regardless of where they came from, or regardless of what they think, whether they believe in our religion or not. Everybody's going to be treated the same. We're going to have fairness and justice. Now, that's a previous generation. That's not what this is at all. How many of you have seen these words, critical race theory? Critical race theory. How many of you have seen critical theory? Critical theory is an older view that basically comes from people like Freud all the way to Marx from background communism that says, you guys have built this society, and the society is based on a perception of justice and right and wrong and good and evil. But when we get behind all of that, it's really just all about power. And so critical race theory takes a step back and says, all of the laws of, for example, the United States are really about keeping white people in power and keeping everyone else subject to them. All of them. Now, when people are taught this in school from a young age, of course they grow up with resentment of people that are different than them. All the laws, everything going on here is to persecute me. It's all to take away my rights. It's all to take away my power. Now there are things I want to do, and I can't do them because there is this invisible, nebulous power attacking me constantly. So, a few years ago, the Southern Baptist Conference, they came out with a few statements and they said, really, we should be using critical race theory to understand our theology in regard to the larger society. And most people were like, okay, what is it? I don't know, right? And it's taken until these last few months to get some kind of a response from the noted theologians of the denomination to say, this is not a good tool. Let me read this to you. On critical race theory and intersectionality, now this is from June 2019, concerns have been raised by some evangelicals over the use of frameworks such as critical race theory and intersectionality. Critical race theory is a set of analytical tools that explain how race has and continues to function in society. Intersectionality is the study of how different personal characteristics overlap and inform one's experience. Critical race theory and intersectionality intersectionality have been appropriated by individuals with worldviews that are contrary to the Christian faith, resulting in ideologies and methods that contradict scripture. Evangelical scholars who affirm the authority and sufficiency of scripture have employed selective insights from critical race theory and intersectionality to understand the multifaceted dynamics 
The Baptist Faith and Message, that's their name for their Westminster Confession of Faith. Scripture is totally true, and it reveals that the principles which God judges us, therefore, will remain to the end of the world. Uh, Critical race theory and intersectionality alone are insufficient to diagnose and reduce the root causes of the social ills they identify. Scripture contains categories and principles by which to deal with racism, poverty, and sexism. And as resolved, the Southern Baptist Convention meeting in Birmingham, Alabama, affirms Scripture first and last, deny anything that contradicts, but critical race theory and intersectionality should be employed as an analytical tool subordinate to Scripture, not as a transcendent ideological framework that the gospel of Jesus Christ alone grants the power to change, but Southern Baptists will carefully analyze how the information gleaned from these tools can be employed to address social dynamics, be it further resolved. Southern Baptist churches and institutions repudiate the misuse of race theory and intersectionality, and so they go on. So they said it's a useful tool. It's not perfect in and itself. It's subject to scripture. And so the rest of the denomination and people started thinking, is this a useful tool at all? Or is this a non-Christian, pagan, philosophical understanding coming from another religion that's now being used for our interpretation of the Bible? You know, you've got to be real careful what you put between you and the Bible. They say, Bible is the highest, you can't touch the Bible, and yet if you want to interpret the Bible through this philosophical lens and analytical tool, you'll come to some very useful things that you can use in the reading of your theology. One of them being that all laws are basically for the manipulation of culture and people in order to gain power of one group over another. Now here's some of the things that are missed in that. How many of you have been to China? Do you get to vote in the Chinese elections? You get to own property in China? How many things can you do in China? Eat Chinese food, right? What about India? Does it seem to you that the laws of the country of India are kind of set up in favor of Indians? Pakistan for Pakistanis, Nigeria for Nigerians. I don't know what the people in Chad are called, Chadians? Every country has already set up its laws to protect certain things and to repudiate other things, mainly for the protection of their people from other groups of people. If you go back through the American history and you see the Christian influence on the laws, you mainly find it in the generalization of law, meaning that all people are the same under law. That's the Christian influence, right? But, you know, I'm not English. I'm not British. I don't drink tea with my pinky up or crumpets or anything, right? But it's just a fact of history. The English set up this country. That's why we're still speaking English, right? So they set up certain laws to protect themselves and to protect themselves from other people. That's without question, right? And everyone else came here, and how exactly did they become a nation? They wrote a document, they made some laws, they made rules to protect themselves, right? Especially from two very bad groups that we call the French and the Scotsmen. Our background is Scottish, right? 
Most of the people live in Tennessee, where it was mainly settled by Scotland, right? But were the Scottish full citizens in English society? They were not. Were the Irish full citizens in it? What about the Welsh? Did they consider themselves all to be of the same race? They actually did not. For a long time, there was laws against marrying Scotsmen, right? Because you know how they are. And the Irish, they're like, eh, This is all much more... People want blanket statements of guilt and blame, and you're the party that's to blame because we're pretty sure some of your ancestors were to blame for something. And so ancestral guilt comes down hundreds of years, and you're really responsible for everything that happened back then. Is that the way the Bible works? Now, here is the important thing. You know, history happens... And people do stuff. And if I go back far enough in any one of your ancestry, we're going to find some slaves back there in your family. That's the way it worked. The Roman Empire was the biggest empire that ever existed, and seven out of ten people were slaves. And you were probably a part of that if you go back far enough. At the same time, you can only ascribe blame so far back in history and just not make yourself a raving lunatic. You can't keep the grudge forever. Pretty much the best you can do is hundreds and hundreds of years after something, you move on. At the same time, uh, these issues are being treated as if something is going on right now that's conclusively a violation of God's law. But we have an entire Bible to look into and see if that is actually true, if that's actually a fact, or if it's a fiction that one group is using to seize power and authority over government and law to control other people, right? One way or another... If the other side is bigger, stronger, and faster than you, if you want to rule, you've got to take them out. It's not even interesting to me that, in general, people of a European background have made most of the laws of this country because it's seven out of ten people in the country. That they were influenced by ancient English law and the common law. That should not be interesting or fascinating news to us at all. So we look at the laws today and see if those are being used in a way that's unjust or evil or unfair. And if they are, then we change them. And if they're not, then we continue them. But if this people that came to this country set up these laws to establish a certain type of society and a certain type of culture and a certain type of right and wrong and things we do and things we don't do, and now there's another group of people that say, we want to do all of those things, and so all of those laws are oppression, there's a trick there. There's a trick there. Most of the big changes in law that have happened over the last hundred years have happened for exactly this reason. To make things legal that were previously illegal, right? A lot of those things are things that were illegal because the Bible specifically said those things are supposed to be illegal. So we have to not fall for a trick that says we're really just relieving ourselves of oppression when the oppression that they're feeling is the hand of God in regard to right and wrong and good and evil. It's not really us. It's him. It's him. 
a whole new world in which people by their own autonomy get to choose whatever they are and do whatever they want and there's no laws and there's no rules and there's no reason and everybody has equality of outcome, not equality before the law, but everybody, no matter what they do and no matter how hard they work or no matter how little they work, they all get paid the same amount and they all get the same amount and everybody distributes everything equally so we can have a perfect society without having to bow to a God that has made a few rules. Here's where we kind of get to the point. God in history blesses people that do some things and he doesn't bless people that do other things. Now this is a story of the Bible. You can read it from beginning to end. He keeps saying again and again, if you do this, I will bless you. And really his standards are not incredibly high. I don't think so. But if you do this and you live like this and you persecute people and you do all of these different things, I will not bless you. Not only that, if you do it long enough, I'm going to have to handle you, right? Mark Paris gave an interesting sermon a few weeks ago on Jonah. And Jonah went to Nineveh because the people had cried out against Nineveh. And God had heard them that Nineveh was persecuting the nations around them and stealing from them and forcing them into slavery and servitude. And so God sent Jonah to tell those people to repent because if they didn't, he was going to take them out. If you really want to understand the story of God, Sodom and Gomorrah, it doesn't have so much to do with homosexuality as their persecution of the nations around them and the evil laws they put into place to oppress everyone around them. But it has a lot to do with whether the laws of each individual nation are reconcilable with the laws of God or are they not? Entire civilizations that have lasted a thousand years don't even exist anymore. Do you guys remember the nation state of Memphis? That's not a joke. The nation state of Memphis, by our contemporary standards, would have been known to be one of the most evil city-states in the world. The way it was understood in the theology and the religion of that time was it was the portal place between heaven and hell, and the priests used to sacrifice people to their gods on their passageways down to hell and up back to the world of the living. And it was one of the most evil places there had ever been and we decided to name a city after it a mile away. Why do we have all this Egyptian stuff here? Have you guys ever wondered? What's with the Egyptian thing? Now, if you go to Egypt and you take the tour and you see the, the pyramids and all that, do you see Memphis? They only found it a few years ago. Down beneath the dust, the entire thing had been reduced to rubble and ashes long ago. You can't even visit a single bit of it. All there is is the faint outline in the sand of this great nation state that used to exist in the ancient world because God judged it and he took it out. So does he do with men and nations today. Now, a lot of you have heard about this from an alternative means because in the recent election, President Trump signed an executive order that made it against their rules for them to use critical race theory in the training of new federal employees. Do any of you remember that? So it does have extension beyond the church, but once it comes into church, we're kind of being required to use racism as the lens through which we judge each other. Now, not the old racism, a new racism, which is against being white and whiteness. If you try to look up these terms, it's nebulous enough to include just about everything, but what they tend to mean is my faith in God. With that, 
There's a great attack that goes on on the white church. And if you look around, what are the odds you're in one of those? So when they attack the white church for the white religion and the white faith, knowing that our ancestors were not all Christian, right? We know the stories of when the faith and the missionaries came in and they brought that religion to a pagan land that did not know Christ. And it was one of the worst. And those people changed and they came to know Christ. And it changed their persons, it changed their families, and it changed their civilization. There's nothing about Christianity that is in some preoccupied way white or a manifestation of skin. It's a manifestation of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ that has revealed himself to us. And eventually it will spread out upon the entire world and the entire earth will know Christ. And we will be one people. We will be one people. Here's something that might be a little disturbing, but if you're in a room and there's ten guys and nine of them are white atheists and one guy's a black Christian, who's your brother? It's not even a hard call, right? Because most of you have been in that situation, right? You've been in that room at work where all of a sudden it gets a amazingly apparent who your brother and who your sister is. And it's not always on the basis of this, right? Let me say something else. Might make you super uncomfortable. I care, but eh. <laughs> Is it wrong or a sin for a people with a specific ancestry, specific people, specific language, specific religion, specific way they eat, specific music they like, specific ways they like to build their houses, to want their children to marry into a family that is similar to themselves. Let's take the Bible into account here, right? The Bible never gives any intimation that such a thing is even unusual. There's a general expectation that that's what folks will do. Let me tell you guys about how I became Albanian. <laughs> So I was in law school. I met this hot administrator at the law school. I didn't really think of her that way, you know. I was, I was the chaplain for the school, so I was teaching stuff, and she would come and straighten me out because she studied theology too. And uh, I remember this one time I was walking by her office, and there was this guy out there with violin players trying to get a date, and she had these double doors, one on the bottom. And, I, and she opened the top door, and she said, You! Out! Close the door on him. I was like, whoa. It's hard to get a date with that chick. <laughs> but we didn't really ever try to date or anything. But over the years, as I knew her, I was impressed by her incredible faith and witness. She was strong. And I fell in love with her, right? And so far, she likes me okay. <laughs> uh... And we got married a little older, as you guys know, but, you know, we didn't even know if we'd had kids. We'd even talked about adopting and that type of thing, because that's awesome. And uh, Christopher was born like 10 months after the wedding, and they haven't stopped coming yet. <laughs> so, uh, after Christopher was born, it was a big deal. You know, I did the traditional thing. I called up Denny's father on the phone and asked for permission to marry her, you know. Uh, and then we flew over there. 
and I got to meet the family. Have you guys ever seen my big fat Greek wedding? If big fat Greek wedding is an eight and a half, this is an 11. The Albanians share 800 miles of border with Greece, very similar culture. Everybody was happy. There was a huge party there. All the guys are kissing me. It was freaking me out. <laughs> but they had to straighten something out. I mean, I had an automatic in because Christopher's there and they love that baby, right? Nice and chubby. And they take me to the back room and they sit me down with the family matriarch, Nana Sophia. Now, she was in her 90s at that time. She had, I believe, 11 children. She had nine children. Uh, but her husband had passed away after the ninth child was born. So she had worn nothing but black and been dedicated to the family for at least 60, 70 years. And they take me in a back room, and it's kind of intimidating. They sit me down in a chair, and they sit her down in front of me. And she gives, I know what she was saying. I don't know Albanian, but she was straightening me right out. <laughs> Look. She gave me the whole speech and everything. And then she softened. Said a few things and said a prayer for me. She spit at the devil to cast out the American evil eye. Then blessed me, and from then I've been Albanian. That's how you do it. It was stratified, but mobile. You could get in there if you had an invitation. <laughs> when Christians think about who their brother or sister is, we kind of have to think in terms of two different things. Number one, the people that were born to your mama, that's your brother and your sister, right? The people that are around you that share your faith and your witness, those are your family, the people that share your culture and your language and your foods and all of that. And in a broader way, that's your family. But there's really only one set of people you're going to be with through eternity. Those are the believers in Christ. So the reason that we talk about this is we don't want these people to sneak in here and start to spy upon the freedom that we have in Christ and start pulling us apart and dividing us all on the basis of this stuff. And the more they preach hate, the more we will preach love. And the more they preach separation, the more we'll preach coming together, right? Don't fall for these lies and temptations of the devil who wants to turn you into something you're not. Because the natural reaction of our flesh, as soon as somebody starts pointing a finger at us and saying bad things about us is, well, we want to fight, right? Is that how you do it? I don't know. I was never good at that. <laughs> so let's take a, good, a look again. At Galatians chapter 3. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then... The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Through faith, for as many of us as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now Christ is our race. Christ is our people. Christ is who we are. It's how we define ourselves. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, 
then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. What promise? The promise that he gave Abraham all those years ago that he would bless the entire earth through his offspring. And that's us, and that's the message that we take out of here. Lord, our God and Father, we just thank you for this great blessing that you've given us, that we can come together in you. We can come together as one people. Wherever we come from, wherever we've been, whatever we've done, whatever we think we are, we do know, Lord God, that all have one Father in you. And we bless you, Lord God, and we praise you. And we are so glad, we are so happy to be a part of you and be a part of your family. We thank you for all of these things in the name of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen.